Please stand, if you're able, for the reading of the word. Our first passage is in Exodus chapter 7, verses 1 through, sorry, 17, verses 1 through 7. Water from the rock. All the congregation of the people of Israel moved on from the wilderness of sin by stages, according to the commandment of the Lord, and camped at Rephidim, but there was no water for the people to drink. Therefore, the people quarreled and with Moses and said, give us water to drink. And Moses said to them, why do you quarrel with me? Why do you test the Lord? But the people thirsted there for water and the people grumbled against Moses and said, why did you bring us out of Egypt to kill us and our children and our livestock with thirst? So Moses cried to the Lord, what shall I do with this people? They are almost ready to stone me. And the Lord said to Moses, Pass on before the people, taking with you some of the elders of Israel, and take in your hand the staff with which you struck the Nile, and go. Behold, I will stand before you there on the rock at Oreb, and you shall strike the rock, and water shall come out of it, and the people will drink. And Moses did so in the sight of the elders of Israel. And he called the name of the place Massa and Meribah because of the quarreling of the people of Israel and because they tested the Lord by saying, is the Lord among us or not? Our second passage is in 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verses 1 through 4. For I want you to know, brothers, that our fathers were all under the cloud and all passed through the sea. And all were baptized into Moses in the cloud and in the sea, and all ate the same spiritual food, and all drank the same spiritual drink. For they drank from the spiritual rock that followed them, and the rock was Christ. Thank you. You may be seated. Well, good morning. Uh, my name is Caleb. I'm one of the pastors here at Providence, and I have the, the great joy and privilege of opening God's word with you this morning. Uh, before we do that, though, for my own sake, uh, would you pray with me? Uh, Father, we uh, come before you, and we acknowledge that every good gift comes down from you. And so we ask this morning that you would gift us with your presence. Father, would you be among us this morning at work in each one of us? Would you encourage us? Would you comfort us? Would you convict us? And ultimately, would you transform us into the image and likeness of your Son? And Father, I ask that you would speak through me, that you would take these meditations of my heart, these feeble words, and use them to glorify yourself. And we ask this in the name of Jesus. Amen. Back in 1991, Richard Overton was lonely. And like many, he wanted to meet some attractive women and hopefully settle down with one of them someday. The question was, how was he going to do that? See, they didn't have eHarmony or Match.com at the time, and so he decided to do what he thought was the next best thing. He started drinking Budweiser beer. Now, that might seem like an unconventional strategy to meet someone, but Overton was convinced by Budweiser's commercials that if he just started drinking their beer, then ladies would just line up for him. Shockingly, that did not happen. 
And because of that, he decided to sue Anheuser-Busch for $10,000 for emotional distress, mental injury, and financial loss. Unsurprisingly, uh, that case was quickly dismissed. And, and I wish I could say that this was an isolated incident of someone filing a ridiculous lawsuit, but we do it all the time. Students sue their teachers because they wake them up in class. Kidnappers sue their hostages because they don't help them avoid the police. Celebrity lookalikes sue the celebrities they look like because the, ce the celebrities look too much like them. See, the fact of the matter is, if we think that we have been wronged, we will take even ridiculous cases to court. And that's exactly what happens in our text. Uh, this morning, we are looking at one of the most absurd trials in the history of mankind, where a whole group of people feel that they have been wronged, and they bring a case against an unlikely defendant. And though this is a, a bit of a kangaroo court, the verdict on this case has impl implications for all of us. And so from our text, we're going to look at the lawsuit, the proceedings, and the verdict. We're told, starting in verse 1, that all the congregation of the people of Israel moved from the wilderness of sin by stages, according to the commandment of the Lord, and camped at Rephidim. But there was no water for the people to drink. Therefore the people quarreled with Moses and said, Give us water to drink. And Moses said to them, Why do you quarrel with me? Why do you test the Lord? But the people thirsted there for water, and the people grumbled against Moses and said, Why did you bring us up out of Egypt to kill us and our children and our livestock with thirst? So Moses cried to the Lord, What shall I do with this people? They are almost ready to stone me. Now you might have been reading along with me and wondering where this idea of a lawsuit and a trial comes from. And it comes from this word, quarrel. Now, when we think of a quarrel, we normally think of like two siblings bickering with each other, pushing each other's buttons and talking about the other under their breath. But here, it actually means to bring a charge or a lawsuit against someone. And really, in the first four verses of our text, we find all the information that we would normally have at like the opening of a Judge Judy episode. Uh, we are introduced to the plaintiff, the nation of Israel. And they have a problem. The Lord has led them to Rephidim, which has no water for them to drink. And they are accusing God of not keeping his end of the deal that was struck back in Egypt. See, before God started bringing the plagues on the nation, he reminded the Israelites that he had made a covenant with their forefathers, with Abraham and Isaac and Jacob, to give them the land of Canaan. And through Moses, he reiterates the promise to the people in Exodus chapter 6, verses 6 through 8. He says to the people through Moses, I am the Lord, and I will bring you out from under the burdens of the Egyptians, and I will deliver you from slavery to them, and I will redeem you with an outstretched arm and with great acts of judgment. I will take you to be my people, and I will be your God." And you shall know that I am the Lord your God, who has brought you out from under the burdens of the Egyptians. I will bring you into the land that I swore to give to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob. 
I will give it to you for a possession. I am the Lord. And it's this promise that the Israelites feel that God has not kept. That because they keep moving around in the desert, they conclude that he must just be waiting for them to all die of thirst, which would certainly be considered a failure to deliver them to the promised land. And because of this, the plaintiffs are seeking for Moses to be stoned. See, I don't think it's hyperbole in in verse 4 when God says the people are about ready to stone me. He's not trying to say to God, man, they're really angry at me this time. He's, He's speaking of the severity of the offense he's being accused of, which becomes clearer once we understand the purpose of stoning. Now, for whatever reason, stoning never really took off in this hemisphere, but uh, in the ancient Near East, it was a rather common practice. It was a way for the people to deal with a threat to the community or the community's way of life. And no one, not even civic leaders, were exempt from the possibility of stoning. And, And so this is a serious lawsuit that's being leveled against Moses. They are accusing him of treason. They are accusing him of seeking to bring harm on the people. But the lawsuit really isn't against Moses. Notice how all Moses says in response to the suit is, why are you, why are you quarreling with me? Why are you suing me? I'm just following the, cra- the cloud around like all of you. See, while the lawsuit is brought against Moses, they're really going after God. They're accusing him of treason toward the people. And perhaps you can relate to Israel's frustration. Perhaps you have banked on a promise from God. Perhaps you've really leaned into, say, Jeremiah 29:11, which says that God has a plan for you to prosper you and not to harm you, a plan to give you a hope and a future. And so you have followed God with high expectations. You've been obedient to him, believing that God will lead you to your own personal promised land where you'll find that perfect spouse or financial security, or he will lead you to the top of the corporate ladder. But for some reason, God keeps leading you around in the desert where there is no water, That ideal spouse continues to elude you. You are skipped over for yet another promotion. You experience yet another financial setback. And it leaves you wondering, what gives God? Why aren't you keeping your word? Why have you betrayed me? And while I don't think any of us would actually try and take legal action against God, I think deep down, In our worst deserts, we'd sure like to. We'd love to get some answers and some remuneration for our hardships and disappointments, which is what makes this lawsuit so astounding. It serves God a summons to appear in court, and he shows up. Look at verse 5. And the Lord said to Moses, Pass on before the people, taking with you some of the elders of Israel, and take in your hand the staff with which you struck the Nile, and go. Behold, I will stand before you there on the rock at Horeb. 
Moses gathers the elders of Israel together, and God himself comes and stands before them. God places himself in the dock, which means that court is in session. Now, unfortunately, there was no court stenographer present at the proceedings, and Moses didn't feel the need to record everything that happened in God's defense But I think from Moses' one question in verse 2, we can actually fill in a lot of the blanks. That when the case of the people versus Yahweh went to trial, Moses asked them, why do you test the Lord? And we are rather familiar with the concept of testing, right? I mean, teachers give out tests to students all the time. And contrary to popular belief, it's not just busy work, or they're not just trying to make their students suffer. They are trying to assess whether students possess a certain level of knowledge. And tests in Scripture function in a similar way. They're trying to determine if the test taker possesses something. But rather than testing their knowledge of, say, the periodic table, these tests are searching for the person's character. And so it would seem that the Israelites are testing God's character. They're testing to see if his attributes are really genuine. And the thing they're zeroing in on is his generosity as their host. See, hosting was of the utmost importance in the ancient world. It was simply expected that a host would provide for their guests, that they would give them protection and provision. And what we see from the opening verses of Genesis all the way through to our present text is the resounding theme of God being a generous host. There is, of course, a big difference between being a host and a generous host. I didn't really figure that out until Emily and I started hosting on the regular. Here is how I host someone. If I invite you over for dinner, I will order a pizza, and I will ask you if you would like ice with your water. Now, I've been a good host in the technical sense of the word. I have provided you food and drink, but no one would ever accuse me of being generous. Because to be generous doesn't mean that you meet someone's needs. It means that you meet their needs in an abundant, in an extravagant way. And that's what my wife does. She's not just going to order you a pizza. She's going to make you a charcuterie board. She's going to put out dessert trays. She's going to make you things from scratch and lay it all out in such abundance that you're going to struggle to leave a dent because she is a generous host. And what Scripture tells us is that this is how God has acted toward all his creation. Listen to what God says after creating everything in Genesis 1, verse 30. And to every beast of the earth, and to every bird of the heavens, and to everything that creeps on the earth, everything that has the breath of life, I have given every green plant for food. And it was so. See, God abundantly provides for all of his his creatures. He doesn't say to them, well, I hope you like lentils and kale, because that's all you get. No, he provides everything for them. And in case we missed his generosity, he reiterates it when it comes to mankind. Again, in Genesis 2.16, God tells Adam and Eve that they can eat from basically any tree in the garden. He lavishly provides for their needs. And this theme becomes even more pronounced as we work our way through the book of Exodus. 
just in chapters 15 and 16 alone, we see God being the ideal host. We see him protecting the Israelites from their enemies by parting the Red Seas in a miraculous way. And when the people are hungry and thirsty, he provides bread from heaven and drinkable water for a million-plus people. Clearly, God has been acting generously toward the Israelites. And that's why Moses' question is so significant. They don't need to test his character. He's already made it abundantly clear to them. And so the question remains, why are they testing the Lord? And the answer is, they're trying to manipulate him. They are trying to get God to act on their timetable and do what they want him to do. This test of God is actually very similar to how Aladdin escapes from the Cave of Wonders. You might remember that after Genie explains the three wishes, Aladdin proposes that Genie isn't actually able to get him out of the cave, that he's unable to provide a way of escape. And Genie, upset that someone would question his character, his power, frees Aladdin from his sandy tomb before Aladdin can make a wish. And that's what the Israelites are doing. They're trying to get something out of God. They're trying to force his hand in their favor. And this kind of uh, testing is always rooted in doubt, a a, a suspicion that God isn't good and generous host. And this deep-seated suspicion normally arises to the surface whenever we face a trial, whenever a hardship of life contradicts our expectations, and it leads us to think to ourselves, I don't deserve the situation I'm in. God could be doing a much better job of taking care and meeting my needs. And so we test God. We act in such a way to try and bring about the results we want. And at this point, we might think to ourselves, "Ah, shame on those silly Israelites. They should have known better. But we think the same way. See, we've bought into this idea that if we do our part, if we do fill in the blank, then God owes us something. Let me give you an example. Uh, In response to the sexual revolution, evangelicals began encouraging their teenagers to live out the tenets of what would eventually be known as purity culture. And the gist of the movement was that if you waited to have sex until you were married, your marriage would be blissful and your romantic life would be out of this world. That if you just obeyed God in this one area, that he would pay you back and make it worth your while. And so thousands upon thousands of teens lived this way and went into marriage expecting ultimate fulfillment. And what they found was that marriage is hard, even though they waited. And it resulted in a lot of angry, confused people wondering why God would betray them like that. I mean, they had kept their end of the bargain. They hadn't slept around. So why hadn't God given them the fulfilling marriage he owed them? See, we think like this all the time. Perhaps you feel like God owes you something. Perhaps you feel that since you raised your kids in the Lord, you had them at church every time the doors were open, that he should have made sure that 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 they were walking with him once they went off to college. 
Or perhaps you feel that, that since you've taken a stand for the Lord in your sphere of influence, since you, you took the high road, he should have vindicated you in some way. Or perhaps you feel that since you trusted in God to heal someone and you prayed fervently to that end, that he should have done it and not let them die. Or perhaps you feel that you have been faithfully serving at church. You have given your time and your money, and so God should have exempted you from whatever hardship you currently find yourself in. So there are countless ways that we feel that our obedience should be repaid. And when we think that God owes us, that he's failing to be a generous host, we tend to respond in one of two ways. One way is to simply stay the course. We keep following him. We keep holding up our end of the bargain. But we do so with a loan shark's mentality, that we're just collecting interest on God's debt to us. And someday, the bill will come due. But while we wait, we continue to do the right things. But our life is characterized by bitterness and grumbling. Or when we think that God owes us and he is withholding what is rightfully ours, we go out and take it. This is often why people ultimately walk away from the faith, because they have tried it God's way and he failed to come through for them. He failed to give them what they wanted. And so they decide they're going to do things their own way. They're not going to follow God to places where there's no water. They're going to go out and find it themselves. But you don't have to walk away from the faith to, to act this way. Uh, we can say to ourselves, well, I've been faithful. I've been obedient. It's okay if I do this thing, even if God says it's a sin, because let's be honest, I deserve it. Can you see the irony of this trial? God is not the guilty one here. The Israelites are. The Israelites are the ones who have acted treasonously. God has never abandoned his promise. He never stopped being the generous host toward them. It's the Israelites who failed to believe the evidence. He failed to trust the host. Like Adam and Eve before them, they looked around at the abundance of God and said, yeah, I see that God protected me over here. Yeah, I see that God gave us bread there. But I'm thirsty and I want water right now. And they actually go so far to say in verse 7 that because God is not bending to our every wish and doing what we want when we want it, we don't actually think God is with us. See, at the first sign of discomfort or displeasure, they try and abandon God. It's treason. They're the guilty ones. They're the ones who deserve to be stoned. And if we're honest we stand right there with them. And so as the trial comes to a close, two things become apparent. One, the defendant is blameless in all this. But two, someone is getting punished. That's clear because Moses is holding the staff. Now, the staff was a versatile item back then. It's kind of like uh, the wooden spoon is today. Uh, the wooden spoon can be used to cook a delectable homemade sauce, or it can be used to, uh, you know, curve some bad behavior. And it all depends on the context with which it's being used. Same thing with the staff. It can be an instrument of comfort and protection, like in Psalm 23. But it can also be an instrument of judgment 
and punishment. And like the wooden spoon, its context determines its purpose. And Moses makes it explicitly clear what the context is for this staff, because God doesn't say that it's just any old staff. He says that this is the staff with which you struck the Nile. The staff is the symbol of all of God's power, all of God's judgment, which was brought forth on the nation of Egypt. And the fact that God tells Moses to pick up that staff means that someone is getting punished. But I want you to try and figure out who's actually getting punished here. Here's the text again, starting in verse 5. And the Lord said to Moses, Pass on before the people, taking with you some of the elders of Israel, and take in your hand the staff with which you struck the Nile, and go. Behold, I will stand before you there on the rock at Horeb, and you shall strike the rock, and water shall come out of it, and the people will drink. And Moses did so in the sight of the elders of Israel. It's not Moses who got struck. It's also not the guilty people who deserved it. It's the rock. Now, at first glance, it might seem like this is the prototype of going to your room and like punching your pillow until you don't feel angry anymore. But that's not really what's happening here. Look closely. Who is standing in front of the rock? Who gets struck? It's God. God is the one who bears the punishment for Israel's treason. See, someone had to pay for their transgression. Justice had to be served. But God, in his generosity, provides himself in place of the people. Now, you might be a a little skeptical and think I'm reading a little too much into this. I mean, how could God be struck by a staff? But look at what the Apostle Paul says in 1 Corinthians chapter 10. 1 Corinthians chapter 10, I read the first four verses. For I do not want you to be unaware, brothers, that our fathers were all under the cloud and all passed through the sea and all were baptized into Moses in the cloud and in the sea and all ate the same spiritual food and all drank the same spiritual drink. For they drank from the spiritual rock that followed them and the rock was Christ. See, Paul, in this passage, is recounting the very trial we're looking at, and he says that Moses, striking the rock with the staff, bringing all of God's judgment and wrath on it, was foreshadowing something. He says that the rock that was struck was Jesus, that God himself bore our punishment, that he was bruised and beaten for our transgression. Jesus, our rock, was struck with all of God's wrath and judgment, and now stands as a testament to the goodness and generosity of God toward us. But that's not how the narrative ends, is it? Not only is the rock struck, does it absorb our just punishment, but water flows from it. That from himself, God provides for them in the midst of the desert. See, much of our frustration in hardship come from God not removing us from the desert. And we think that's proof that God is not a generous host. But what he does for us in the midst of hardship is he offers himself. That in the midst of the desert, he shares his very self with us so that we might be satisfied. 
And so where do we go from here? How, how do we respond to the generosity of God, even in the midst of deserts? Perhaps this morning you find yourself in one such desert, that life is not going the way you expected. It is hard, and you are frustrated at God and his seeming lack of generosity towards you. And if you aren't there this morning, I guarantee you will be someday. Can I invite you to look at the rock that was struck for you? To look at the one who, out of his generosity, gave himself for you. But you can't just look at it. See, the struck rock with water flowing from it does you no good if you don't stop and drink from it. You must taste and see that the Lord is good and generous to you. You have to drink it in. You have to let it wash over your mind. You have to let it flood your heart. Then and only then will you be satisfied and sustained in the desert. So brothers and sisters, when you find yourself in the deserts of life, rather than putting God back in the dock, why not just come and drink from the struck rock. Let's pray. Father, we come before you and we thank you for your great generosity toward us. We thank you as the Apostle Paul declares in Romans 8 that you have given us your son and with him all things. We thank you and we praise you for that and we confess, I confess how often I am not mindful of that. We confess how frequently we accuse you of being stingy and withholding from us when we have served you so faithfully. God, would you forgive our arrogance? Would you remind us that all we are really, guilt, really worthy of and deserving of is death, is your wrath? Father, would you also help us to see with new eyes the great love that you have for us, that you would come and be struck for us in our place would you allow us to see that, Father, to drink it in and be satisfied in you? Even now, Father, as we sing your praises, would you just impress this upon our hearts, your great love, kindness, goodness, and generosity toward us. And we ask this in Christ's name. Amen.